Good afternoon. Again, if I haven't gotten to meet you, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors and preachers here at the Trails. Uh, it's great to be gathering today and continuing our study uh, as we're uh, kind of walking through uh, verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. Today, we, we come to these verses, uh, and, and I don't know if you caught it as Jasmine was reading it a minute ago, but in light of our study over the last couple of weeks, these verses being read aloud to the original audience, uh, those in Ephesus, those Christians there, it would have been one of the most scandalous and provocative parts of Paul's entire letter so far, as it really makes plain what Paul has been saying and what we just sang about in a really pointed way about the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles within the Christian church. Now, in looking down again at your Bible, there might not be, seem to be anything that is exceedingly provocative or hostile. Like in listening to Jasmine read that, you're like, uh, are we reading the same text? Are you talking about what we're talking about? And the answer is, Yes, because that's what we saw uh, last week. It, this, this text furthers that conversation from the previous section of Scripture so that the, what we see is that the Christians in Ephesus and other Christians who would receive this circular letter and then even us by extension, the whole goal and aim of it is that we would come to understand that through Jesus' cross, Jesus was killing the hostility that exists between us and God and then transforming us, as we talked about last week, into new people. People that are not hostile towards God and towards others, but transformed into lovers of God and lovers of others as we are reconciled to God through one body, Christ Jesus' body on the cross. And so we saw how Jesus is building up a church, and it's made of Jews and Gentiles. And then he goes on to say that we are fellow heirs in today's text members of the same body and partakers together of the promise in Christ. Indeed, we see we are being built together by the Spirit into a dwelling place for God. And that might not seem that offensive to you, but it would have been scandalous in the early church. Because what it means is that any distinctions that used to exist between Jews and Gentiles has been, as we talked about last week, abolished. All hostilities there have been killed, meaning that there are not Jewish Christians who have certain rights promises and covenants because of their lineage. No, there are only now those who were once spiritually dead who have been made alive together by God and adopted into a new family. So that the good news for the Gentiles is that they aren't renters of the promises of God. Rather, they are owners of the promises of God. That is a fundamental shift of everything that we have seen so far in the Bible as it's been walking through. Right? Even if you're a Gentile, like all of us, and you become part of God's family, you're still a renter of the promise. You're not an owner. You're not an heir. And yet what we see is all these distinctions are about to be just torn down in and through the gospel of Jesus. And while it might not seem that wild to us, the conversations that would have happened in the pews during Paul's letter and the conversations afterwards would have been lively, to say the least, to say the least. But that this, this great news, that these Jews, their special status is no longer a special status just for them, but is given to these pagan Gentiles, would have greatly offended our Jewish brothers and sisters. So if you think that you've had some controversies that have bubbled up maybe in small group discussions or other things as you've been walking through Ephesians chapter 1, maybe, those conversations have, would just get blown out of the water uh, when you are gathering together to talk about Ephesians chapter 3. So I want us just to begin to simply note the hostilities that existed in the early days in the church. And we're not going to take long to do this because we've covered this a lot in last week's sermon, but just by way of reminder, I want us to remember briefly the hostility that did exist in those early days. Because as we've said a lot over the last couple of weeks, the most perplexing problem of the early church wasn't a lack of buildings and it wasn't persecution. 
Rather, the most perplexing problem of the early church was what to do with these Gentile Christians. How do you integrate them into the life of the church, especially now in hearing God's word to them that these Gentiles are not second-class citizens? They're not second-class Christians. They're not halfway believers. Rather, they are full heirs to the covenants of promise, just like the Jews who had believed upon Christ. Remember, though, there had been millennia of hostility that existed between the Jews and Gentiles. So while the Jewish Christians had always been predestined and chosen and adopted and the redeemed people of God, now what we are seeing is through the gospel that these dirty Gentiles are hearing the gospel preached and they are believing upon Jesus. And what Paul has been saying is that they also are those who have been, just like these Jewish Christians, predestined and chosen and adopted and redeemed. So that the Jews and the Gentiles who are now in Christ have this common faith in Jesus. And the Jewish Christians were just fine. They were just fine with Gentiles becoming Christians. But the controversy started over how these Gentiles were then welcomed into the Christian community. In the very beginning of this, the Jewish Christians began by demanding that these Gentiles become Jewish. They were very convinced that if anyone wanted to become a Christian, they also, of course, had to become Jewish and had to submit themselves to all the ordinances like circumcision and dietary restrictions and festival observances, among other things. And yet what we've been seeing throughout the last couple of weeks in looking at places like Acts chapter 15 and seeing the preaching ministry of Paul in the book of Ephesians is that in this new covenant age, the scandalous news of God the Father is that he had planned and purposed that the Gentiles need not become Jewish in order to be Christians. Rather, the Jew and the Gentile are made into one new man, which meant, of course, that the Gentiles did not need to follow the Jewish ordinances in order to be true Christians. No, they were all the way Christians because they placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus. Thus, by faith in the perfect life and substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus by the work of the Spirit, that's how the Gentiles were grafted into the family of God, into Jesus' kingdom. So the scandalous thing that Paul was appointed by God to preach was that these Gentile Christians are not required by God to celebrate these festivals or to be circumcised, or to adhere to Jewish dietary laws in order to become Christians. It's not by following the ordinances that the Gentiles demonstrate their faith. Participating in them doesn't make them more holy. Thus, the Gentiles, which would be the vast majority of us in this room, the good news of Paul is that we need not participate in things like that in order to be saved. And while it may not seem that controversial to you, in this day, that was extraordinarily controversial. That brought up a lot of hostility. And and it might seem kind of weird to you, all right? It might seem kind of common to you. You you might not have ever been in a church where they say, all right, now we all have to celebrate and do all these things in order to have holiness and righteousness. You might say, well, of course we don't need to celebrate the ordinances. Of course we don't have to have these dietary restrictions or festivals in order to be true Christians, But this has not always been so clear in the Christian church, especially in these early days. Come to think of it, even now, there are groups of people who try to persuade you to believe that the ordinances are still necessary if you would follow Christ. You ever met anybody like that? I have. They try to tell you. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, you've believed in Jesus? Great. But you actually need to live in accordance with the Jewish ordinances in order for you to be a true Christian. And then all of a sudden you see, oh, this wasn't just a problem for the early church. This is a problem still now. 
This is still going on. If you don't believe me, just log on to Instagram. You'll see there is a whole group of people called the Hebrew Roots Movement, and they tell you that if you really want to love Jesus and follow the Bible, you have to celebrate the festivals and observe all of those Jewish dietary laws. Really, in effect, what they're doing is exactly what the early Jewish Christians were trying to do to the Gentiles, which was to condemn them. And yet, Acts chapter 15 says, no, 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 no. You don't have to follow any of that stuff. Instead, what we see through the preaching ministry of Paul is that by trying to force these heavy burdens onto the backs of these Gentile Christians, all of that is just unnecessary. And he says, even we can't do all of these burdens and these things that are being placed on our back through the law. So why would he put that onto the Gentiles? And yet, as we said, people are still trying to do that today. Now, let it be said, if you love celebrating festivals, if you love to eat a kosher diet, guess what? You are free to do so. It is good for you to do. Great. Awesome. But know that keeping any of these ordinances is not necessary to be a Christian. Also, they do not demonstrate or produce godliness in your life by keeping them. They are not the means for you to grow into higher planes of deeper relationship with God. No, Christian brother and sister, you have the perfect righteousness of Christ upon you by faith. You cannot add to it by your good works. Rather, you are justified before God by grace and through faith in Jesus alone. And this has always been uh, a huge thing in the early early church, even, even now. And it was this teaching that the Gentiles did not need to follow the Jewish ordinances that created such hostility. In fact, it created passionate, angry, repulsed, murderous hatred for Paul. He was not liked at all. And the Jews who had become Christians wanted to kill him for preaching that these dirty Gentiles are now heirs, owners of the covenants of promise, just like they were heirs as Jews. Because they saw that they were God's people, not these ungodly, uncircumcised Gentiles, and it even made them angry enough to want to kill Paul. But even Jewish Christians, those who had believed upon Jesus, they also weren't really sure what to do with this radical inclusion of the Gentiles into the promises of God. I mean, they saw the promises given throughout God's word that the nations would come to trust upon God and be counted as God's people, but they couldn't understand how these ordinances had been abolished now through Jesus. And so it caused a lot of hostility. It caused a lot of tension in the early church, leading even, as we talked about last week, to the creation of the circumcision party, which, as we mentioned, doesn't sound like a fun group of people to be a part of. That's a weird party. Don't go to that party. Uh, That's strange. But then we see through Paul's writings that they were false teachers. And what they did is they went into Gentile-dominated Christian churches, and they showed up saying, hey, you believe in Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, your sins are forgiven? Great. But here's actually what you need to do. And they started preaching these ordinances and claimed they were still demanded by God that there was a higher relationship with God that that was found by participating in the ordinances. If only they would just not eat certain foods. If only they would celebrate these festivals and get circumcised. Then these dirty Gentiles would have just great relationship with God. That's really what God wanted them to do. And yet Paul engages in this evil teaching in the book of Galatians. He, He writes at the very beginning of Galatians, you remember, who has bewitched you? Oh, foolish Galatians. And then he remarks how amazed they were that they were turning away from the true gospel to a false one. We also see Paul talk about this in his letter to Timothy. 
who was pastoring the church in Ephesus, the one that, that we're reading about right here. And Paul expressly calls the teaching that forbids things like marriage and requires abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Do you know what he calls that? The teaching of demons. Dang, bro. That's harsh. He's all out, man. And so we have, to, we have to admit in all of this, if you think about Paul and you think about the things that he preached, that all these Gentiles now don't need to do these things in order to be made righteous before God, we have to admit, don't we? It's kind of strange that this is Paul's ministry. Think about what you know about the Apostle Paul. And as you do, you'll see there's a lot of irony in that this is the message that God had ordained for him to take to those dirty Gentiles. Do you remember Paul circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews? As to the law, he's a Pharisee. He was part of the Back to the Bible Club. He loved the Bible. He loved God's word, committed himself to it. And he was zealous in his Judaism, even persecuting Christians for their faith. And do you remember it was even on his journey to Damascus to bind those evil Christians and throw them into prison when God intervened and bound Paul to his will instead? God saved Paul. God changed Paul. God gave him a new heart with new desires and new longings. And now Paul loved the things of God. He loved Jesus, whereas before he only persecuted him. We read, we read of his conversion a couple of weeks ago from Acts chapter 9, and we remember what God says about Paul. Do you remember? He said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So it's kind of ironic that he, a Pharisee, is now the one who is chosen by God to preach the manifold wisdom of God in the new covenant age to the Gentiles and to assure them that they are not the necessary to keep all of these ordinances. Rather, they can come by faith in Jesus alone and be adopted into the family of God and become heirs of the promise, heirs of the covenants of promise, partakers of the promises of God in Christ Jesus through the gospel, apart from ordinances. And it was Paul's incessant preaching that these ordinances have been abolished and that Gentiles are now heirs of the covenants of promise that brought about the intense and murderous hatred of the Jews. So much so that as Ephesians 3 opens, we see in verse 1, where is Paul writing this letter from? Prison. Homeboy is in prison. For what reason? Well, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... You're like, how is, on behalf of the Gentiles, he's, in, he's a prisoner. And it's here where Paul chooses to mention in his letter, he is writing from prison. It took him all the way here. Like he made it all the way to chapter three, where he's like, oh, by the way, I'm also in prison. Uh, and, and why is he in prison? Well, we remember from the book of Acts that it's because of his preaching ministry to the Gentiles. You, you can read about that more in Acts chapter 21 to 23 later on today if you want to. It's kind of a wild story. But we learn from the book of Acts that Paul ends up in prison and is transferred to a different prison and then eventually ends up in Rome under house arrest. And it's from there where he's writing this very letter to the Ephesians. Thus, for his preaching ministry to the Gentiles, that is why he ends up in prison. It's because he won't quit saying to the Gentiles, you do not need to keep the ordinances in order to be the people of God. That's why he ends up in prison. That's how important it was to Paul to preach this, that he would end up in prison on behalf of the Gentiles. 
But notice, he doesn't say that to make the Gentiles feel bad, right? Like, I'm only here because of you guys, man. He doesn't want them to feel bad. He isn't after sympathy. Rather, there's a wonderful irony here, isn't there? R.C. Sproul, uh, he notes uh, in looking at this text about how ironic this is because Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Thus, rather than identifying himself as a prisoner of Nero, the emperor of Rome, he glorifies in his incarceration and says, no, 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 no. Nero is not the one who I'm a prisoner here for. I'm a prisoner, actually, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, he sees himself not bound by the fetters of Rome, but bound by the fetters of the will of God. Isn't that wild? He's like, I'm not, I'm not here because you're putting me in prison. I'm here because God has ordained for me to be put into prison. All for, the, all for the sake that he shared the gospel boldly with the Gentiles. He knows that God had ordained for him to do that. But also he knows God had ordained him to share the gospel, not only with the Gentiles, but with whom? Kings. Wild, man. Thus he is about to do that. Thus his suffering is for their future glory, but also that the gospel might go forth. So it's for their glory, he says in verse 13, as they groan inwardly, as they await the eager adoption for the redemption of their bodies and to enter into the kingdom that has been prepared for them by Jesus. The day is promised and is quickly coming when these Gentiles will sit at the table of God and they will feast, but not as servants, but rather as the sons and the daughters of God. They who were once not a people are made a people. They're not considered to be halfway believers. They're not second-class citizens. They are sons and daughters of God by faith and through grace. Thus Paul sees his imprisonment and his missionary calling to the Gentiles to preach this wonderful news as a gift of God. Look at me at verse 7. He writes, of this gospel, I was made a minister to, uh, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So the fascinating thing here is that Paul doesn't view his ministry as laborious. He doesn't hate the job that God gave him to accomplish. Rather, he views this calling of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and to spend his life even being imprisoned on account of the name of Jesus. He sees this as part of the grace of God, a gift that has been given to him. And that is the heart of all good and faithful pastors and missionaries and Christians throughout the generations. Because even when we are imprisoned and killed for the sake of preaching the truth of God's word, we have a confidence, a deep one, in the providence of God. God's meticulous care, that God is the one who's meticulously, purposefully governing and sustaining all of creation, working all things together according to his purposes, so that though we might one day be imprisoned by a godless government, as other Christians have been throughout the generations, we can know that if that is our lot, that God who called us here below will be our God there, and that even this is according to the very placement of God. Thus, if you end up in prison, God's just given you a change of ministry. He's like, now your new ministry is in cell block B, Room A, you know what I mean? And you're like, well, I guess it changed. I was working here, now I'm here. So either way, though, we are called by God to live wherever we are, not afraid 
to speak the truth in a godless age because what can man do to you that God has not ordained? Nothing. So why be afraid of them? Why be afraid to speak the truth in the midst of a godless age? What can befall you that does not graciously come from his hand? Nothing. When you understand that, the, the way that that produces gospel boldness in you changes everything about you. Just everything, man. So, so that even now, as a prisoner of Nero, Paul sees himself as a prisoner of Christ there on behalf of the gospel, and he uses every single moment to preach the truth of God's word, because for him, to live is Christ, and it's for the encouragement and building up of the church, but to die is gain. And so I, I'm going to ask you a question I asked myself a lot this week as I was looking through this. Do, do you view your life like that? Like, Really? Or are you afraid of speaking the truth of God because you might die? Do we really believe that to die is gain? Or is dying the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to you? Do do we have this kind of confidence in the sovereignty and the providence of God that motivates our devotion to him, knowing that nothing happens to us apart from his commanding it to happen. See, there's great joy and gospel boldness to be had. There's great joy and gospel boldness to be ours as we live our lives in this confident trust in the midst of a godless age. Thus, having examined some of the reasons for the hostility around him and the hostility that exists in Ephesus, and seeing the ministry of Paul and some of his preaching ministry and the great hope. Now what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through and just see this text for itself. That we might see some beautiful things as we walk through. So let's look together. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. So it says, of this, uh, that's not verse, oh, that's 7. Sorry, my bad. For verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. We'll stop there. If you notice, when we read these verses a few minutes ago, in your Bible, is there a little line Is there a little line right after verse one, like right before verse two, kind of like a little dash? If you you look down at verse 14, what does verse 14 say? It says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So he's about to pray. Now look back up at chapter three, verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, and he just goes off on on a tangent. So verses two to verse 13 is a tangent. It is a 12-verse tangent. He's like, for this reason, I'm about to pray for you. Oh, wait a minute. I need to tell you something else right before I pray for you. And then he comes back and says, all right, now, for this reason, I'm about to pray for you. So, so everything that we're seeing today is kind of a, a, a divine aside. It's an abridgment to what he wants to do, which is pray for them. But before he prays for them, he stops mid-sentence and reflecting on what we talked about last week. And he reminds the Ephesians of this wonderful news that they had become heirs of the promise fellow citizens in this new kingdom of Jesus that's being built together with Jews into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And he recounts how profound of a mystery it is that all of this has been revealed by God. And we know that Paul is kind of pushing the pause button because of verse 14. Thus, the next 12 verses, as we said, hits the pause button before praying. So this is what he wants to say to them before praying over them. Verse 2, he says, assuming that you've heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, which is the job he had been given by God, 
And, and most commentators, they think that the church in Ephesus has grown since Paul left. So while some of them would know uh, who Paul was, uh, others might not have known that he was the one who planted that church in Ephesus, right? There are new Christians who might not even know who Paul is. So he's assuming they have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to him, specifically this calling to go to the Gentiles and to preach. Verse three, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly, probably referring to the letter so far in Ephesians. And, and as, as, uh, as Matt mentioned, we might kind of get tripped up on the word mystery, right? We might think here that Paul's referring to some kind of like secret thing that's an enigma, right? Like anytime I ride in a plane or something like that, which has been a long time, uh, but anytime I do, I'm like, this is a mystery. Like I have no idea how this works. Uh, or, uh, or something else in your life, they're like, I don't know, it's mysterious. Like this is the time of year where things are mysterious, uh, Right? And some might think that, that Paul is kind of referring to something like that. Like, I don't know, it's unknowable. It's an enigma. We can't know it. But rather, that's not how Paul is using this word, and it's not what this word means. Rather, this word mystery is referring to something which was always in the very plan of God, but had been obscured. We couldn't really see it that clearly in the earlier chapters of the Bible, of redemptive history. So something that we see, but, but not clearly. And later when we see it, we look back and we say, oh, that was there all along. My favorite example of this is, you ever watch the movie Ocean's Eleven? I know I'm going old school. That was a long time ago. Ocean's Eleven. Remember at the end of Ocean's Eleven? For our younger audiences, I won't tell you what happens. You can ask your mom and dad, maybe watch it later. I don't, I don't know what it's rated, parents. Uh, <laughs> throwing that out there. Uh, but uh, Ocean's Eleven, if you're over whatever age they say you have to be, and your parents say yes. Uh, but in that movie, uh, that, at the very end, you see certain things happen, and you're like, oh, what? And they kind of like fast forward back through the movie and show you this scene and that scene and that scene and how everything was working together, and you're like, it was right before my eyes, and I didn't see it. In the same way, this is what is happening. This is the mysterious thing. These things are here all along in God's word. And then Christ Jesus comes, and then he dies, and they're like, the suffering servant must die. What? Right, they're looking back at Isaiah, and they're looking back at other prophecies, and then he rises from the dead, and they're like, of course he rises from the dead. And then we see the gospel going forth into the Gentiles, and they're like, well, of course, this has always been the plan of God. Right, and so it's this thing that you see looking back on it. You, you can't see it really as you're walking through, even though the bones are there, and even though God is the writer of the Bible, is putting in all these little signposts later that when you look back, you're like, oh man, that was there. I don't know if you've seen, there's a, there's a little meme going around of this guy who like wakes up in bed and he's like putting together all these things. It's like, it was couscous, I don't know. Uh, anyway, there's some video and he's like, was it you that shared that, Amber? Was it you that I saw it? I think it was you. Uh, maybe it was my wife. I don't know who it was. But there's this guy, and he's like, like looking at all these like timeline things that happen in the Bible, and he's like, oh, this is pointing to Jesus. Oh. Uh, and and that's, that's the idea here, is that all along, there's these things that God has been working in and through the storyline of the Bible, that when all this happens, you look back on it, and you say, oh, of course, that was what God was doing. Earlier, it was obscured. You couldn't really see it that well, but now you can. So this inclusion of the Gentiles being grafted into the people of God, being co-heirs with the Jews in the redeeming work of Jesus has always been there, but we couldn't really have eyes to see it until after Jesus rose from the dead and the Spirit came to make all of this make sense to us. And so that is the mystery here that Paul is referring to, as we see in verse 6. He makes it really clear. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are the fellow heirs. 
right? He doesn't just leave this like dangling word out there like, it's mysterious, I don't know. No, he says, verse six, look with me, verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Thus, that is the wonderful news that Paul got thrown into prison for, and it's the glorious news that God's been planning all the way throughout redemptive history. Thus, Paul writes in verse four, when you read this, which Paul means in this letter when it's read out loud in the gathering together of the congregation, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse five, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this is a fascinating phrase, isn't it? That, that there in the gathering, as they read Paul's words out loud, they can, by the Spirit's work inside of them, perceive this mystery of God. That was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Thus, while God has progressively revealed throughout the Bible the generations from Abraham to Jacob to Moses to David and Isaiah, this mystery of the Gentiles being grafted in, this new man in the place of the two, it wasn't visible. It's like, it's like these men walked around in the same room that we now find ourselves in, but with very dim light. You ever done that really early in the morning and you fumble over stuff and you can't see anything? Those early morning fumblings around, you step on Lego or something like that. And this is all part of God's plan that he gave the prophets of old. They wrote down very specific things that revealed his purpose, the inclusion of the Gentiles, so that when Christ came and died and rose from the dead, the lights got turned on and we were able to see the room brightly and clearly. We were able to see how everything fits together in the room, where the furniture is and where everything is located in the room. And we can see those toys that were hidden under the couch and those Legos that we step on so often. Everything is made clear and visible. See, in the Old Testament, they look forward with hope, trusting in God's plans and purposes that they would come to fruition. And they looked forward in faith. But now, from our place in redemptive history, we look backwards and we see how everything is worked together Perfectly, so that what Jesus said is true, that our eyes are blessed, for they see in our ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So now these things are made clear to us. This wonderful mystery isn't that mysterious at all. Rather, it is very plain. And it's been revealed to Jesus' holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, the word apostle means a sent one or a messenger, someone who is an authoritative spokesman for another authority. So it has this kind of meaning when it's used in the Bible. But whenever we see reference to the apostles, we know what we're talking about is the capital A apostles, the men that were chosen by God as the apostles, right? The original 12 minus Judas plus Matthias and then Paul added in. Right? It was these apostles set apart by God who were spokesmen for Jesus in this unique time in redemptive history. So in this age when they had no Christian Bible, as God was still leading these men along by the Spirit, drawing them to write down exactly what they wrote and exactly what he wanted his authoritative words to be for his people. Right? So before we had the Bible, it was through these apostles that God spoke to the church and after these capital A apostles, there were no more of them. They are the only ones. So that now we test everything as Christians according to the very written word of God. It is our authority in our lives, and we submit to it 
It is inerrant and infallible, and it's inspired. It's breathed out by God. And it was these apostles, during the time before we had the Bible, to test everything by, who were chosen by God for this specific task at this unique season, the foundation of the church. They were divinely called, divinely commissioned, and divinely gifted as the spokesmen of God. Thus, the foundational authority for these early Christians was the apostles, as they were specifically chosen by God to reveal what had been obscured not clearly seen in the Old Testament, but which now have been brought to light. The lights got turned on through Jesus. Also, as a side note, if you meet anyone who claims to be an apostle today, and they tell you you need to listen to them because they have received direct revelation from God, and they tell you you need to submit to them because they have the same authority as the New Testament apostles, listen to those sirens going off in your ear and all the red flags that are popping up around you and just run. Just run. Run far away, right? The cult signs are out, just leave. That's a telltale sign of the kind of men that Paul warns the Ephesian elders against in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. They are false apostles who speak twisted things to draw disciples after themselves. So run, do not walk away from these deranged people. And then we see the word prophets. Now we might wonder, who are these people? If they aren't on the same level as the apostles, right? And they aren't the ones who are receiving direct revelation from God like the apostles, because that's the role of the apostles in the early church. Then who are these prophets? Well, we know from another one of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, that the one who prophesies speaks to the people for three things. Firstly, their upbuilding. Secondly, their encouragement. And thirdly, their consolation. Thus, as far as we can tell from letting Scripture explain Scripture to us, these prophets function as preachers who encourage the church by proclaiming, teaching, making clear and plain the teaching of the apostles in the various places where God has raised them up as elders over various churches that are being planted. Their role, as John Calvin explains from 1 Corinthians 14.3, is to speak what contains doctrine so that the church is built up. So their aim as, as these prophets, these preachers, their goal is to teach doctrine to the end that there would be a solid foundation with Christ as the cornerstone, as we talked about last week. So their job is to teach doctrine, to build up the church, and to exhort, to encourage one another in that pure doctrine to the end goal that they would be comforted by the word of God. So these prophets have a different role than the apostles. Theirs is to preach the already revealed truth. They are not people who receive a word from the Lord and just need to tell it to you. No, because if it has been revealed, then guess what? It's already been revealed. So if you have somebody who comes up to you and says, I just have a word for you, you can say, oh, is it in the Bible? No, that's okay. I don't need it. That's strange. And it's not the role of a prophet either. It's not even the biblical definition of what a prophet does. Now, occasionally the Lord might give special revelation to a prophet on some practical level. Like there's Agabus in Acts chapter 11. He prophesied of a coming famine in Jerusalem, which is why Paul was bringing those offerings from the Gentiles to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And then again, it was Agabus who told God, as recorded in Acts chapter 21, that Paul would be bound and arrested if he went to Jerusalem. But interestingly, in the New Testament, we see no office of prophet ever mentioned. Rather, in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, remember, to Timothy, who's the lead pastor of this church in Ephesus, and we see him give detailed instructions for two offices in the church, elders, pastors, 
are synonymous, and deacons. Interestingly enough, we see no prophetic office given with any qualifications. Rather, it's the elders and the deacons who are given qualifications that they must meet in order to be the servant leaders of the congregation. Now, all of that to say, there were apostles who received the word uh, from, received revelation from the Lord Jesus himself, and then there were prophets who taught, who preached, who made clear what the apostles taught. This is why, by the way, in the early church, Acts 2.42, what did the early church devote themselves to? The apostles' teaching, so that the local church would be built up in the faith and so that they might be comforted. So that we might know, as Richard Koken eloquently explains, that we are heirs together with the Jews as Gentiles. We are created into one new people in Jesus that will inherit the kingdom together. And we are members of one body, which means that regardless of ethnic or socioeconomic background, when we became Christians, we were spiritually united in Christ together. We all received the same spirit that sealed us and brought us together in the capital C, the big letter C church, the universal church, but then also called us to live out our faith in local churches like ours. And Paul uses this image of a body because a body consisting of one foot or dozens of feet that have been stitched together, which is kind of a gross picture, is intentionally kind of a weird picture. Right? So churches need different people working together. Thus, no one in a church is there accidentally and no one is unnecessary because we are put together by God's design. And through faith in the gospel, we become sharers together in the promise of Christ. We share the same spirit who teaches us the truth about Christ through his word and he enables us to proclaim the wonders of God in Christ by teaching the gospel from the scriptures. It is the spirit who gives us new life and empowers us to put to death the sins of our flesh and the spirit produces in us a confidence that we have been adopted into the family of God, and he grows the fruit of Christ in us and gives us good gifts that we might serve one another. It is a stunning privilege to be a sharer together in the promises of God's Holy Spirit so that we can each contribute to the building up of our church, and that's the point. So then verse 7, it continues. So Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given. And then Paul begins to lay out the two things that God uh, is calling on his life to do. Firstly, so this grace was given, firstly, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, the word unsearchable doesn't mean that we shouldn't search the riches of Christ, right? Like, oh, I don't know, it's unsearchable. We'll never find it, right? Like that sock that you lost in the dryer, it's unsearchable, man. I don't know. No, that's not what this phrase means. Rather, it means that we will instead never stop finding the riches of Christ. This word unsearchable, the unsearchable riches of Christ means there are always more to be found. Mark Dever explains that Christ's riches are so many and so deep, they can't be fully cataloged or exhausted or listed entirely. They can't all be found out. They never end, he says in his Mark Devery voice. See, brothers and sisters, this is why God is more precious to you today than he was 10 years ago. It's why he's more precious to you than he was a year ago. And this is why God will be more precious to you if God tarries 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years from now. It's because his mercies are new every morning. And the idea of the riches of Christ being unsearchable fits with how the Bible describes God over and over again. For example, in Job chapter 5, verse 9, we see that God does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. 
Job 36, 26 says, behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Psalm 145, 3, the psalmist writes, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, oh, the depths, the riches, and the wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Thus, God's greatness, his understanding, his judgments, the very riches of Christ, all are unsearchable, which means that even in eternity future, after billions upon billions upon billions of years in the renewed earth, you will still only be scratching the surface of knowing depths of the riches of God that are yours in Christ Jesus, which is nuts. That's crazy. And this is our great joy here upon the earth to know that there are always more of the unsearchable riches of Christ to find. Thus here upon the earth, we can rest assured there are greater riches to be known And we have the amazing privilege to give ourselves that study, to dive into God's word until it gets into us so that when when life cuts us, you and I bleed Bible. This is our goal, to know the unsearchable riches that we have in Christ, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God and with one another, a new life, power over sin, the hope of eternity with him forever. All of this, God has planned for us who are Christians so that we might, as Paul writes in Colossians 2, reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Thus, Paul's ministry is a gift of God that he gets to share these mysteries with the Gentiles like us so that we might have greater and deeper joys in the gospel. People like us who are dirty, uncircumcised Gentiles that do not deserve it. His riches are unsearchable. There are always more to be enjoyed. And as a result of this first calling in Paul's life, the second then is mentioned. Secondly, he then bring, is called to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in Christ who created all things. Thus, the end goal of Paul's ministry is found actually in verse 10. In verse 10. So that through the church, capital C church, made visible through local churches, gathering of the saints, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is a phrase that will later on be used, this phrase, uh, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. If you want to flip over with me, uh, we also see it used uh, in chapter 6. It is in chapter 6, verse 12. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if you look back at verse at chapter 3, verse 10. So through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Thus, to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, the gathered church made up of Gentiles and Jews with Jesus as our head. It is through our salvation and our gathering together where we see the multifaceted, manifold, wisdom of God put on display for even the demons to look at and be confounded by. That they look at our gathering and it doesn't make any sense to them because we have God's grace given to us, something that they can never experience. 
And together they see our common lives shared together. And that's when we gather together, we are doing something much more than, than just gathering like this. Though this is great for our edification and our building up in doctrine and the faith as we celebrate the risen Christ. Do you know there's a spiritual component to our gathering as well? We are putting to shame the spiritual authorities in the dark places. Again, Richard Koken, he puts it like this. He says, the hostile powers of Satan in our gathering like this, they are forced to recognize the triumph of God's eternal plan to gather together in his church under Christ. He writes, every local church gathering anywhere in the world, even those in persecuted places where no one ever sees them gather other than the spiritual world sees them gathering, even those churches are all of them, every local church gathering anywhere in the world is like one of those open top bus champions celebrations. But instead of a football team celebrating a temporary sporting victory in a stadium, a church under Christ is a celebration of his eternal spiritual victory over Satan's sin, death, and the cross. It's kind of like I'm imagining that the Blue Bombers are going to win again. It would be like that sort of great parade where they're like, look at how great we are. Every time we gather together as a church, we're like an open air bus demonstrating to the powers and the spiritual realms God's greatness and his victory over them. That's wild. Thus, our weekly gatherings as Christians, week in and week out, are a glorious display of the finished work of God against Satan and his kingdom. Have you ever thought about that as happening as we gathering? Like, like we're at this open air celebration where God is just forcing Satan to look at us and to remember week in and week out, you're going to lose. Just so you know, this is not ending well for you. Oh, look, I'm going to save another one. It's beautiful. And then we see verse 11 and 12, and all this is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ, Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. See, this text is so beautiful in the Bible's overarching storyline. The entire mystery that God has been unfolding throughout human history that has led us to this exact moment where Jesus would stand condemned in our place on the cross, facing the hostility, the wrath, the judgment of God that we deserve to pay. He stood condemned in our place. He, being God, took upon himself an eternity of judgment that we ought to have paid. And he, being fully man, stood as our substitute. And in his death, he created one new man from the two, Jew and Gentile, so that God's mystery is not revealed through, is now revealed through the gospel and not through the law. So that anyone who repents from their sin admits that they are a sinner before God and asks for forgiveness and turns away from that way of life and turns to trust upon Jesus as their God, Savior, and King, you are promised that you will be saved and forgiven for your sin. There is nothing left for you to do. The only thing that you bring to the table is the sin that makes your salvation necessary. So today, come and believe upon Jesus. There's nothing more for you to do. You cannot perform any religious task or moral accomplishment to deserve or earn this forgiveness. All you can do is admit your desperate need for Jesus and then come to him. And then for those of us who are Christians, those of us who might think these Jewish and Gentile differences are maybe a little petty and silly, right? Like you might read sections of scripture like this and find it kind of boring. We know that the gospel is for all people in all places and times, here, there, and everywhere. Yeah, we get it, man. Maybe it's a waste of time to even talk about such things. Surely we don't have those kind of issues in the church today, or do we? So if we pause and thought about it, isn't it true that we, as Christians, 
can be just as judgmental, uppity, and self-righteous as those who have become Christians from, from what we deem as maybe like rougher backgrounds than you. It's all subjective, because whatever the rougher background is, right? We might hear stories of how God saved someone and how God transformed them. We might be thankful to God for saving them. Praise God, we might say. And we might even be moved to tears by their stories of God's grace. But we might not be quite as willing to have that guy date our daughter or that girl marry our son. Uh, Even though they are now new creations in Christ, the old is gone and they have been washed as white as snow. Even though they're walking in purity and striving to live their lives for the sake of Jesus' kingdom, we might justify our own self-righteousness by calling it wisdom. Oh, I'm just walking in wisdom. I'm sure the Jews thought the same thing. Like, like until these people can learn our ordinances and follow them, till they eat, eat what we do, until they're purified like us, We can't have table fellowship with those people. They can't marry our kids. We need people from better backgrounds, people like us, people who share our values. And and though this may not be a one-for-one connection for almost none of us comes from a Jewish background, isn't it the same sinful, self-righteous heart that seeks to justify itself that just keeps popping up in our lives over and over and over again? I was thinking about this as I was driving my kids to school this week, and I found myself listening to Kanye West's Jesus is King album, specifically the song entitled Hands On. I was listening to it again this week after having studied a lot of these verses and found it really interesting. It describes how Kanye felt after coming out as a Christian and wanting to do a gospel album. And the song specifically relates to how he experienced a lack of acceptance from Christians who remained skeptical and judged him when he started professing Jesus as his God, King, and Savior. And, and I, I don't have a judgment on Kanye's spiritual soul, but, but I, I think his words help me understand how I'm not and how you're not too different from the early days of the church. This is what Kanye wrote. <clears throat> he said, What have you been hearing from the Christians? They'll be the first ones to judge me. Make it seem like nobody loved me. I'm not trying to lead you to visas, but if I try to lead you to Jesus, we get called halfway believers. This is only read halfway through Ephesians. Only if they knew what I knew of. I was never new till I knew of. The true and living God, Yeshua, the true and living God. And then he has this refrain that says, somebody pray for me. And I was listening to Kanye. All I could think about was just the many men and women that I know who are part of our church who come from lots of different backgrounds and how easy it would be for you to made, made to feel like you are a halfway Christian because of your past. And I, I pray that you don't. I, I pray that we haven't made you feel that way. If... If before you came to Jesus, you're an alcoholic or an addict or on the front lines of celebrating sexual identities or working at strip clubs, if you walk through gender dysphoria or negative body issues and even now bear the marks of surgeries that promise peace and brought none, or if you've walked through years of just mental instability, I want you to know that it's the wonderful aim of God in and through the gospel that these things from your past from before Jesus saved you, 
they are not what characterize or define you. See, at one time, before you were in Christ, you were not part of the family of God. You were a stranger to the covenants of promise. You were without hope and you were without God in the world. But now you're in Christ. You're a fellow heir. You're a member of the body. You're a partaker of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You who once were not have now been made new. And though you may walk through the rest of your life with the effects of your previous life marking your body or your mind, part of the scandal of the cross, as Timothy Paul Jones explains, part of the scandal of the cross is the fact that those who rub shoulders under the shadow of the cross are precisely the people that would never naturally mingle with one another. Brothers and sisters from different people groups and nations and generations. So you can be assured if you're in Christ, you're not a halfway believer because of your past. Brothers and sisters, let us examine our hearts, and if we find ourselves having treated others as second-class Christians, not measuring up to some standard or thing that we have in our minds, let us repent for that wickedness. And in thinking about this and praying through this this week, I really only want to bring this as a word of caution for our church. I've had lots of conversations with people over the last two years or so about how they have never been made to feel like a second-class Christian or a halfway Christian because of their past in our church. And I praise God for that. And it's my hope that we would maintain this unity around the gospel for decades to come as we remember our desperate need for God's grace and extend that grace to others around us. Specifically, I've been praying and looking at the world around us as well, and I want to encourage us to press on in this endeavor because I'm convinced in the months and years ahead, especially with the rampant gender dysphoria being pushed all around us, as well as the push towards medical mutilations through gender-affirming transition, It's my prayer that we would see hundreds and thousands of people saved by Jesus out of this craziness and that he would direct them by the Spirit to local churches like ours and that they would not be made to feel like they are second-class or halfway Christians because they are not. Even though they may have the effects of their transitions on their bodies for forever, it is our great opportunity and joy to not treat them as if they are any differently than we are in Christ because we have all been made new in Christ. It's my prayer that Kanye's song would never be true about us. I pray that as Jesus redeems and saves people and brings them to our church, that we would love them as we have been loved by Jesus. And that we, even after only reading halfway through Ephesians, would implement what we read and strive for unity in the gospel. At the end of that song uh, that I mentioned earlier, there's a part near the end where Fred Hammond joins in, and this is what he sings. He says, I deserve all the criticism you got. If that's all the love you have, that's all you got. To sing of change, you think I'm joking. To praise his name, you ask what I'm smoking. Which, if you know Fred Hammond. uh, So he says, yes, I understand your reluctancy. Yeah, but I have a request, you see. Don't throw me up. Lay your hands on me. He says, please pray for me. What a beautiful thing. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to do next. He's about to pray for these Jewish and Gentile Christians, specifically that God the Spirit would be sent by God the Father to strengthen them in their inner being so that Jesus may dwell in their hearts through faith, that they might experientially know the realities of what is true already, that they might be strengthened to comprehend the love of Christ for them. 
But that's next week's sermon. So let's pray, and then we'll respond a little bit to God's word by thanking him through singing.